This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. So, welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Christian Tio Berndahl on the coach development, coach education, uh, coaching knowledges that we have. In the first part, we had a really interesting discussion around sociocultural perspectives on sport coaching, the difficulty in bridging the gap between the different coaching knowledges and why this interdisciplinary dialogue is really critical to have in these times when we see that some of the knowledges we have are actually producing some adverse effects. And so welcome back, Christian. Thank you, Nora. And I wanted for the second part of the discussion just to focus on the recent empirical work that you produced that is uh, really looking at how athletes themselves who are within these talent environments, how they interpret and make sense of the coaching practice and what kind of identity they should be portraying to be an ideal athlete and a promising athlete who can continue on the talent pathway. So just provide us a little bit a background to the empirical work that you've done. So the background here was that when I finished my PhD, I moved into a postdoctoral position here at, at Norwegian School of Sports Science. And I was, um, I, I had the leeway to, to do whatever I wanted, basically. So I wanted to continue some of the stuff I was doing in my PhD with the broader athlete population in Norway. So we wanted to see if we could, through a longitudinal design, uh, continue to investigate investigate some of these issues and tensions that came out as as critical for understanding athlete development. And then uh, how sport is organized in Norway kind of is, is important to know here as well because we don't have any formalized talent development programs or the f- level of formalization is is, is not as, as as strong as you would see uh, outside of the Nordic countries or outside of the Scandinavia maybe. So. Uh, so, uh, and what this creates is this really, really broad based model of sport participation where you try and facilitate athlete talent development within the same structure that is funded and, and, uh, policy, uh, both funding and policy both aims to, to then facilitate athlete development, but also just for sports participation and, and this sports for all perspective. Uh, we have a huge school structure that's kind of evolved in Norway as well. So if you're an if you're an ambitious football player or handball player or skier or whatever, uh, you always have an opportunity in your local environment usually to to go to some kind of sports school program. 
So sports school programs during, especially in high school, is really, really a big issue in Norway. It's popular and it is not something that is solely aimed on elite sports development. It's just uh, part of the same sports model. Uh, so what we wanted to do was um, was to see if we could kind of um, follow some of these kids through diff, uh, through uh, at least one year uh, during their high school education. Uh, so when they're doing their high school education, they're playing for their clubs, their club team, maybe different teams in their club, different age categories. But when they're 16 in handball, they can start playing adult handball as well if they're deemed good enough. And then they usually... They're usually part of a sports school program. There's very little interaction between the club and the school program. So that creates a lot of coordination issues. And then you have the national sport organizations that have their talent development initiatives and youth national team camps and and, and so on. So it creates this kind of ecology of different athlete development uh, actors and, and in, initiatives. Uh, and we know that coordination is a huge issue. Uh, and my idea was that if when we're looking at something like injuries, it has to do with these kind of coordination issues. It has to do with load management and not solely on their warm up or preparation protocol. Uh, so we set up this study where we followed a couple of 200 kids from four or five different uh, sport high school uh, programs in Norway. Uh, so it was uh, only humble players and they were between then the ages of 16 and 18. So we tried to monitor load on a daily basis, how they were, where they were playing, how much, how hard, and, and how they were training, and also looking at injury uh, prevalence and, and, and incidents. So this was my, uh, this was a little sidestep into, into real sports medicine research. We also wanted to know how these schools were facilitating their programs. So we set up a spin, some spin-off studies focusing on that. And we also wanted to know how uh, these, um, this, this time, uh, how load varied and how injuries would occur and, and, and vary, how that also affected motivation. So we had a motivational psychologist, a colleague of mine, whose name is Sylvia Stahl, who, who also did some some um, some kind of connected some of her studies to, to that project. And then we, of course, wanted to speak with the kids themselves. And we've published uh, two and a half papers from, from the study. And then the last one is, is, is the one you've read, uh, which, uh, which is just submitted. And we're looking forward to getting back because I think this really touches upon what's really, really important. That was based on a qualitative material where that was based on, on interviews and focus groups interviews with these kids. And what we tried to do was to examine how the athlete development culture, we could call it that, how ideals, beliefs, norms associated with athlete development was then some of these environment affect the social interactions and self-image of, of these athletes. We wanted to know how these kind of cultural, structural issues influence their individual psychology, if you want to call it that, and, and, and their relation to self and others, how they stage managed their interaction and how they attempted then to balance these risks of overuse and injuries with this kind of 
dynamic need to always be seen as promising, promising and committed handball players. And we know for, we know that one of the kind of main stressors from, for some of these ambitious athletes and, and in Norway, there's a lot of ambitious athletes is that, uh, is, is when the, when others, their teammates or, or their contesters are developing in a more rapid pace than them, them, themselves. And that is a really, really strong incentive to always continue to accelerate and increase and, and just push harder to, to develop, right? And it's just that the problem is that development doesn't, development in sport doesn't occur in that way. So a lot of these processes that are trying to influence, they, they develop in their own pace, uh, depending on a lot of things they actually don't have much control over. It's called puberty, for example, or, or, uh, and, and other stuff related to maturity as well. Uh, and of course they can do a lot of stuff that will help, help them improve, but it's, it's, it's not as easy as if you just do more or you train harder, you develop faster or you develop more. And I think that was, that is basically one of the biggest implicitly strong beliefs and ideas that are tied to practice and within this, uh, humble context, athlete, humble athlete development context in Norway, but also in, in Norwegian sports in particular. So this, so we have this, this whole culture of athlete development that is at least implicitly very, very strongly dominated by an idea of if you just do more, train harder, train better, and better is always, is always more, then, then you will develop more rapidly or you will develop faster or stronger or better. And that is the key if you want to become an elite athlete. And so, so if we would look at this at a population level, uh, if you would look at my siblings, of course, there's a relationship with how much you train and how did you become in, uh, as, as a runner or, or in football or whatever. But still, it's not like a linear relationship. And it's not like if you just do more, then, then it's, it's going to become better. And I think that what we're showing in this last study then is how this actually has profound effect on how these athletes understand themselves and themselves in relation to others. And it is a, a strong social force that actually increases the risk of injuries, burnout, uh, loss of motivation, and, and so on. And it's, it's just off the grid. It's, it's nothing that we talk about where, where it's, it's too complicated to think about. So, so it's hard to get across as a message. And it, it, but it's really one of the big issues here. So, so what we did together with a colleague of mine, Maria Luca, now who's a PhD student here from January 1st, I'm really excited because she's been doing some great work, uh, as, uh, was, was, um, was then setting up this series of focus groups into use and individual into use and trying to understand how, how, how these norms and values uh, influence how um, how these athletes stage manage their interactions. Yes, it. I think it's a really nice example of doing interdisciplinary work, and you have this team where you have worked from uh, from a more natural science perspective and a more social science perspective. So, I think that's really a great example of when you talked in the first part about we should have more of these 
discussions across disciplines. And for this study, one of the frameworks, the ideas you used was Goffman's ideas about on stage and off stage and managing the identity on stage. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those ideas and how does that performativity of the identity, how does it manifest in how these young women talk about themselves and how they portray themselves in their sporting environment? Uh, definitely. And, and, and it was it was great to actually revisit Kaufman uh, uh, when we're trying to search for, for cons- uh, an analytical and conceptual toolkit to kind of see if we how we can tease out some of this, uh, some of this knowledge and, and understandings. Uh, and then what is interesting is that Goffman has been used, uh, I remember him from studying sports coaching here because there was especially uh, uh, quite some scholars in the UK that was using Goffman to understand the performativity of coaches. Uh, and, and it's actually been a long tradition for that now and, and within the sports coaching literature. But there's not that many people who actually at least uh, to our knowledge, when we started working on this and, and sports coaching, you had been using Goffman as a way of understanding how uh, stage managing interactions and and for our, our forming and, and how these more structural issues are forming their subjectivities and identities and uh, and how they relate to stage managing their uh, and and the consequences that that may have for participation development and performance. So, um, and I think that what we, what we were kind of unraveling then is how both implicitly and explicitly these kids are socialized within these structures that have very, very strong implicit values and some articulated beliefs that shape their understanding of what it needs what the what the environment requires of them if they want to continue to improve and continue to develop, and they are highly aware that they are being observed and that how they come across, especially then uh, to their coaches, which is basically the key stakeholders here, and their peers as well, will define the possibilities that are given to them at any given moment. And if training hard, training more, do always doing better, always being prepared to do even more, even uh, and, and doing everything better, that are values that they can can articulate not only in what they're doing, but in how they're actually showing their their conduct when they are observed. And these kids are observed when every day when they go to training. Uh, both by their coaches and their peers, and they're also part of observing the others, right? So, and there's a lot of productive effects of this. So, so the productive effects of this in Norwegian athlete development is that there's a lot of kids that are actually very ambitious, very hardworking, very uh, structured and positive, and, and 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 stuff like that. But what happens is that it becomes a huge source of stress. Uh, when they're encounters issues or, or, or situations where they can't live up or they can't live up to the code of conduct. So when you get injured, it becomes a race of uh, of coming back as soon as possible, right? And that is not how a sports medicine personnel would, would usually think about uh, appropriate development and, and injury rehabilitation. It's this idea of continuous improvement 
that is very difficult to cope with for these athletes when they don't experience continuous improvement. And continuous improvement is not, they learn that they have control over, implicitly and explicitly, they learn that they have control over their own development and improvement. And to some extent they do, but to, uh, but uh, the whole story is that a lot of this stuff they don't have really too much control about. We talked about puberty, growth and maturation, right? But it's also about opportunities that they are given by their coaches, especially as gatekeepers for their own development. So, so then thinking, uh, so, so in my thinking now, and I have some great Danish uh, colleagues that have been writing about this recently, is that this understanding of talent, it's not a discussion about nature or nurture or the relative uh, influence of, of either. It's this idea of, of, of talent as something that is actually being performed. And if you want to live up to, if you want to, if you want to stay in the game, you have to continuously live up to that fulfilling that role as a talent and we didn't use talent in the paper we've we've just written up but we've used uh, promising humble players just to make sure we didn't get into this discussion the discussion about what is talent uh which is really not that interesting uh, if we see it as a dynamic and complex phenomena uh, but then living up to this this role is basically what they need to strive for every day uh, and it's productive, but it also has a lot of uh, negative uh, um, or potential negative outcomes. Injuries, overuse being two of them. Um, and the other one is, is that it, it, it creates a very narrow way of thinking about meaning in sports, right? So meaningful experiences can be tied to development and performance. It's really, really fun to improve. It's fun to master new stuff. It's fun to to challenge yourself and others. It's fun to win games and trophies and so on. But but still, this idea of, of what is meaningful in sports is being reduced to something very instrumental. And when that maybe becomes, if, if that becomes the sole driver, I think that we're, we're losing some of the, those great aspects of actually being involved in sports and, and using sports as an arena for resonance, right? Or, or for something that you could actually uh, in a more kind of existential way, um, have a profound impact on your life and, and who you are. And then you see a lot of identity issues coupled to this, I think. I, I think we can think about athletic identity then as something that is a, a, a great driver for, for sports development in one way and in the other way is, is, is something that actually when your identity becomes too tied to the specific issue of continuous improvement or, 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 or your, um, your performance as a humble player, for example, it, you become really, really vulnerable. And to most people, life is just more than just dedicating yourself to, to a very, very narrow and, 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 and singular project. Right. So, uh, and and what they, these kids are allowed to now is is not to broaden their horizon. It's not to develop a, a multifaceted identity and kind of uh, muddling through and and figuring out who they are and and what they want to do. It's a way of trying to produce this, or through this idea of continuous improvement, introduce one way of thinking, one way of doing, and one way of, way of being only one pathway that is being introduced yeah and it's mm -hmm. it's about being right it's not about thinking and doing it it's actually who you are becoming and who you are allowed to become 
and and this has and and when you speak with these kids you can actually see you can almost observe those kind of identity conflicts and and they don't use and, and lots of the time they don't have the language to actually articulate this right so they can sense that something is wrong or or something is at least something is wrong i don't know maybe it's a t- too strong a word but it's at least something is conf- there's conflicting tensions there's tensions and conflicting demands and and sometimes they're okay with it and sometimes they're not but this actually influences their being in the world and uh, sometimes it becomes difficult uh, for them to kind of cope with it. And I think that it articulates then in how they how they manage their interactions. And I think we can see how that, especially, uh, we, we know how it is productive in athletic development, but we can also see how that limits both athletic development, but really even more profound who, who they become and who they're allowed to become in the world. And when we earlier discussed about the, coaching knowledges and one of the aspects are these linear coaching or stage-based athlete development models that they are not only descriptive but they are also prescriptive in a sense that they give you the idea of this is the way where you need to go and this is the step that you have to make definitely and then even the word dropout is is very negative isn't it it's it's falling out you know that it's the idea that this is the same as failure and we only have this one ideal pathway which is success and everything outside of it is deviating and failing to live to that idea where you should be going and and i think you 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 pinpointed something really really important there nora because um and i'm i need to arrest myself for for saying dropping out uh, several times today but uh, my colleagues uh, in their study of reasons for dropping out of sports in Norway, they they didn't they consci- cautiously didn't use the the term dropping out. They used opting out of sports, trying to communicate that what these kids do is that they're actually choosing something different. Uh, and and it it could be that there's something wrong with sport either way, but it's not like it's not like they're their life project is necessarily failing because they actually choose to do something else. But if sport is to have positive and profound impacts on their lives, and if it's uh, and, and if sport is something that we actually want to want to want to make available for more people longer, then these are real issues that we need to kind of tackle. Obviously, dropout is such a it's a very widely used concept, and we are used to the concept. And I just started to see how problematic it was when I was doing some interviews with youth athletes. And when I'd see that they actually decided that I find some other pathway more attractive for me than the talent pathway. So they actually chose to do something different. And then if I write about them as, you know, this person dropped out from sport there, I see that, you know, it doesn't match with what they have told me and so it's really important to recognize this but it's a great example of how knowledge is produced and actually influence how we think and behave and who we become right because it's so ingrained it's it's a so ingrained way of speaking about it and thinking about it and 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 for policy as well right so that how we how we think about it, our concepts when we and, and our words when we think about and speak about these things is actually important 
I was thinking about another thing then when you said this this idea of opting out versus dropping out is I was reviewing some some stuff here uh, for our practical exams. And when we do our practical exams with our sports coaches here, we talk about, so we they're, they're then doing coaching with a group of athletes and this group of athletes, we call them objects. So in all our written material, it says that, yeah, well, you're, you're supposed to get 10 objects. And those objects are not objects, they're real people. They're subjects. But still within this, this way of thinking and doing, we, we, we actually, in 2021, call people objects. And so, so we're going to just speak to how ingrained some of this stuff that we're actually trying to challenge and kind of contest and, and fight how ingrained part of our whole way of being and, uh, or kind of, it's become an ingrained part of how we're, we're, we're living our lives, right? I'm not, I'm, we didn't, we haven't discussed this yet, but I have a colleague who's been, who's a sports philosopher here, uh, who's been working with the German contemporary sociologist and philosopher, Hartmut de Rosa. And there's some really, really, uh, it's been a really, really rich landscape of literature to move into, to kind of think about how this late modernity, how we can think about what it actually is doing uh, when thinking about expansion and sustainability and acceleration and optimization and all of these neoliberal values and ideas and how they come to life and have profound influence, both on how, like the, uh, overarching structures actually society at a large in this globalized culture uh, or globalized world is shaping our institutions and our individual psychology right and and as and when you think about transdisciplinarity then it is about for me at least it's about understanding how this dynamic these dynamic processes move from the structural to the individual and from the individual to the structural right through institutions for example but we need to really have then then your thinking needs to have grasp the possibility of having different thoughts and and several thoughts in your head or in your body or whatever where where thoughts exist I don't know or in the world uh, at the same time and and then then you can't come into a coaching course and the coaching course is about what's happening beneath your head and we call it exercise physiology. And then the next day, we're supposed to go into a course that are going to teach you something about what happens in the brain or in the head. And then the next day, we're talking about everything that which which is surrounds you, and we call that the social. So for all of athletes I've coached, their head is connected to their body, and their body is connected to their head, and they don't exist in a social vacuum; they exist in the real world. So all so so the ability to think how this interacts is really really critical for us to kind of uh, dig into you and 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 that has to be the starting point. And I think if you can move from that that idea as a starting point and get the conceptual uh, language and tools to kind of move from that starting point, then you can go into the disciplinary knowledge and 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 use that pragmatically to feed into kind of a, a genuine holistic understanding of, of, of how things are connected. But then it, it's a very long way to go when we start within the silo disciplines and then somebody's going to 
help you tie this stuff together at the graduate level or on your fifth year or fourth year or third year when you've already been socialized into these ways of thinking and doing. But I think you will be one of those people who will <laughs> work towards <laughs> having a different way of approaching this. I think this will leave a lot of open questions, which is great. A lot to think about, uh, discuss further. I'm sure it will be very interesting to many of the listeners uh, today. And I will link the work that you produced in the show notes so people can take a look and uh, explore it further. So thank you so much for the discussion, Christian. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, Nora. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.